Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and guide and lead us. And we ask you, your spirit, to show us what you would want us to see from all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. 2 Kings chapter 8, starting at verse 16. We finished with the story of um, Benadad getting sick, calling to Elisha, sending him a bunch of gifts uh, through his servant Ahaziel. And Ahaziel takes the message back that you're going to get healthy and then murders him. And that's where we left off with new king, new king in uh, Syria. Uh, chapter 8, verse 16. And in the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, being then king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. Thirty-two years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as did the house of Ahab, for the, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, yet the Lord would not destroy Judah for David his servant's sake, as he promised him to give him always a light and to, and to his children. All right, so we just want to look at here. We now, one of the things we find in Kings is that it bounces back and forth between Israel and Judah's kings. And we start with one, and then when, when one dies, we talk about the next one and, and go back and forth this way. So we're, we still have Ahab now reigning <laughs> up in Israel, even though we last knew he died. But now we're back to, to Ahab being alive because we've come back to the kings of Judah at this point. All right. So, or excuse me, Joram. So Joram, Ahab's son, is king of Israel. Jehoshaphat, who is, a, who is a good king of Israel, is putting his, it says, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. So this is talking about a co-regency. And we've talked about this at various times before, oftentimes when the kings would get ready to go to war, they would pick, an, pick one of their sons and say, this is, this is now... My son is now king, not prince. That way, if he died, his country didn't go into a uh, civil war trying to pick one of his sons over the other one, or the sons go killing each other. So many times they would go, okay, it's time to go to war, and I might, may or may not die, so this, this son is going to be the next, <laughs> next ruler. And they would make them co-regent. Uh, one of the greatest examples of co-regency is in Daniel, uh, when Belshazzar is celebrating in the in his in the uh, room, and the handwriting on the wall comes, and he calls David in. And he says, "I will give you so much stuff." And the biggest thing he said is that I will make you third ruler of uh, the Babylon. Well, he couldn't make him co-regent with him because his father. Belshazzar's father was out at battle that time, so he was, Belshazzar was only second ruler, so he could only make Daniel third ruler. So that's a picture of co-regency. And it happens quite frequently. And here we see Jehoram being made co-regent with his father. And uh, it says that he was 32 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for eight years. So the poor guy is only get to rain, going to rain for eight years. He was young. Huh? He was young. And he was pretty young to take over. Uh, 
And it says in verse 18, And he walked in the ways of the king of Israel, as did the house of Ahab, for, his, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So we have here Jehoshaphat and Ahab were very close friends. Remember, we, we had them both going to battle. And Jehoshaphat was, a really, was really intelligent. If you remember, Ahab and Jehoshaphat went out to battle. And Ahab told Jehoshaphat, you go out there with king, kingly garments gone, and I, I will go out in disguise. And the enemy kept attacking jo, uh, Jehoshaphat, thinking he was the king, <laughs> realizing that he wasn't, and pulled back the attack. All right, so we find that, uh, we, if you recall, I'm just bringing this out, Jehoshaphat's not the, the sharpest tack in the, in, the, uh, in the tool shed there. Uh, he, he does a lot of dumb things. But in this process, he gets one of Ahab's daughters to be his son's wife. Now, we look at this. Judah is supposed to be the righteous nation. They're supposed to be following God. And for the most part, Jehoshaphat followed God. But he picks one of the worst possible people he can for his daughter. He goes to Israel where they're worshiping idols. And Ahab has been worshiping Baal for, for decades. And he takes one of his daughters to be the wife of his son. And God has over and over told his people, don't be unequally yoked. And this is very important for us that we don't go out and find, you know, a mate that's not, not the same, believing the same things we are. We shouldn't even go into business with somebody who's not, not, not in agreement with us or anything else. You know, our best friend shouldn't be somebody who's not in agreement with us. That doesn't mean that we can't have friends that aren't Christians. It just means our best friend, the one we hang out with all the time, should be a Christian. You know, who we spend our time with, the bulk of our time, should be Christians. Why? Because they're going to emphasize what we emphasize. In the business world, people will take partners that we got one who's godly trying to do things God's way and another one saying, well, you know, all people cut corners. All people, you know, do these little, little things. We can't make money without doing this. And, and there's a tension that's there that is, that's very hard. And so Jehoram has a wife... <laughs> that is not a follower of God. And it says he follows in all the ways of Israel, which means that he was out worshiping idols. He, and it's a kind of an amazing thing because we think back, you know, and at this point in time, women don't have a lot of a official authority. But just like in today's world, they have a lot of say and pull in what happens in a family. Uh, Solomon's wives pulled him down from a very high place with God into worship of idols. And we see it over and over in the scriptures. Eve was able to draw Adam into, into her sin. And all the way through, we see this, this process going on. And Jehoram's wife draws him into idol worship. Now, I don't think he was that far from it to begin with, obviously. But you know, he is brought in and he does... What is wrong after the idols? And then there's this little statement in verse 19. Yet the Lord would not destroy Judah for David, his servant's sake. As he promised David, there will always be a light or you will always have a ruler in Jerusalem. Uh, Judea or Judah, excuse me, uh, always had or a 
king of David on its throne. Even at the very end, when Babylon was swapping out kings all the time because they were being disobedient, God made sure that King Nebuchadnezzar always chose a son of David or a relative of David to sit on the throne. Even when they were picking the, the kings. And it's kind of an amazing thing to watch how God protected his nation and made sure that David's always had a seat on there. Now, having said always, there's one person who's going to come up in, in about three chapters, in about two chapters, that didn't belong on the throne. And God never recognized that person as a, as a ruler. And we'll, we'll look at her in just a moment, in a, in a couple of weeks. <laughs> um, but that's the only time Judah ever had somebody sit on the throne that wasn't somebody of David's seed. And God never recognized her. <laughs> All right, verse 20. In his days, Edom revolted from under the hand of Judah and made a king over themselves. So Jehor, uh, Joram went over to Zire and all the chariots with him. And he rose by night and smote the Edomites, which compassed him about. And the captains of the chariots and the people fled to their tents. Yet Edom revolted under the hand of Judah unto this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time. And the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Joram slept with his fathers and was buried in the fathers, with his fathers in the city of David. And Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his stead. All right. So we have Joram, and I'm going to have to be very uh, Jehoram. <laughs> uh, very careful because it's easy to get these names mixed up because you've got Jehoram and Joram. <laughs> All right. Uh, and excuse me. And so he revolt uh, Edom, which is a nation just to the to the east of Israel, revolts against the rule of Judah and made themselves a king. So they were a vassal of Judah at this point, and they decided they were going to say enough of Judah. We're tired of them, and they went to battle. And they picked a king, and Joram went over to Zire and all of his chariots with him, and he rose by night and smote the Edomites, which compassed about him, and the captains of the chariots and the people fled to their tents. So we have Joram coming to help Jehoram. <laughs> so they're both bad. They're both bad kings. Uh, well, bad by God's definition, okay. Uh, their people different, didn't necessarily think of them as bad kings, but these are kings that aren't following God. And so the Edomites revolt against, the Judah, against Judah, and Jehor, Jehoram goes to war, and Joram comes to help him. <laughs> All right? I know this gets some confusing sometimes, and these names aren't real easy for us to always remember. Uh, and he comes with his captains of the chariots, and the people fled to their tents. So, and, you know, so he's attacking. And then it says, Yet Edom revolted under the hand of Judah until this day. All right. So to the point of the writing of this, the Edomites had revolted. They, weren't, they never went back under the reign of Judah during the period of the writing of this, which takes us all the way through to captivity of Babylon. So this is quite a, quite a period of time. Uh, but they revolt. And then it says, then Libna revolted at the same time. 
Now my research on Libna is not absolutely sure whether it is a city or a country or a king. <laughs> Nobody knows for sure exactly <laughs> um, from what, my, what I was able to look up. But somebody else revolted against him. So the kingdom of Judah is falling apart under, under Jehoram. And this is kind of interesting because in, in King David and King Solomon's time, they pushed the boundaries of Israel almost to their full extent, all the way up toward the Euphrates River, all the way out to the Mediterranean, all the way down to the wilderness of, uh, of Sin near Egypt, and, and westward out to, uh, eastward out to where Manasseh and Ephraim had. They had a very large kingdom, just as God has, had promised. And they're starting to lose it. First it gets fragmented by the, com- the country being split in half, and then over time they start losing to, the, to their neighbors, all because they're not obedient to God. And it's kind of amazing what will happen when we disobey God. He doesn't instantly destroy his children. He just lets things happen to try to get our attention. His whole purpose of that attention is to get us to repent. At any time, these nations could have repented and been able to be restored. But they never did. The northern kingdom, Israel, never repents, ever. They have nothing but a series of bad kings until God takes them into captivity to Assyria. The southern kingdom had little less than 50-50 good kings. They had good times where a good king would come in and try to worship God and bring his people into worship of God, and then he would die and the people would very quickly fall away and worship, worship idols. All the bad kings, Israel. Northern kingdom is Israel. Um, and the southern kingdom is Judah. Now, having said that, it's also kind of confusing because sometimes we refer to the southern kingdom as Israel as well because they're all Israel. Uh, but the southern kingdom is Judah. It's, it's the one that follows God about half the time. And, and it's kind of interesting because you've got certain kings that, you know, after after long reign of some king, evil king, they would go in and, and a king would come in and they would say, all right, we're going to follow God. And they would start cleaning the temple. And during the time of these bad kings, they didn't destroy the temple. They used it as a junkyard, basically. It started collecting garbage. <laughs> and I don't mean trash, trash. It's just uh, kind of like our conics. Whatever you don't want anywhere in here goes into the conics, you know. Uh, and that's what would happen in the temple. They weren't worshiping there, so they would just fill it up with anything anybody wasn't using. And before long, it was filled with what we would you know, basically just say junk. Uh, and one king took three months to get it cleaned out. It was so full of junk. That's a lot of stuff in it. And this would happen over and over again. The good king would die and bad king would come out, you know, stop. They'd be, after a while, worship would stop in the temple. And you go, well, why did worship stop in the temple? Well, mostly because nobody came. While the, while the Levites were getting supplies and people were giving their tithes and offerings to the tabernacle, the Levites would stay there and they would, do what, you know, they would take care of as many people as would come. But after a while, the people would stop coming. They would stop bringing tithes and offerings. And the Levites would say, the heck with this. We're going back home where we can, where we can farm and, 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 and make a living. And this is very important. This is why we support church. <laughs> Church staffs, you know, is because 
that we need them to be able to serve and keep moving, moving forward. Well, when the Levites would stop coming, people would just start saying, well, we got a lot of empty space there. We got a great big city. We, got, we want to store this extra stuff. We'll just start storing it in this great big building, and that's what they would do. And it's kind of hard to imagine the beauty of the temple being ruined by just having junk, junk stored in it. And yet that's what would happen. Because right now we're still talking about Solomon's temple. And Solomon's temple was one of the great wonders of the world. It was covered with gold all the way out and it shone out on the hillside. They would say that no matter where you were in Israel, when the sun hit it just right, you'd see the, you'd see the temple on the temple mount because of the gold that would, you know, it was all gold. <laughs> and it was a beautiful thing to, to see. And yet it kept being used for the wrong reasons for so many, period, so, so many periods of time. And, you know, it's kind of hard to imagine, but I've seen this, we've seen this in our day and age, especially in Europe. We're seeing some of the great cathedrals of, in Europe being turned into places of business, offices, or worse yet, uh, Muslim mosques. They're just being taken and, and used for other things other than the worship of God that they were created to be made for. And it's very sad to see. But Christianity is dying so thoroughly in Europe that it's hard for churches to stay formed. And the handful of churches that are still around aren't preaching the gospel and then they fall apart. And so we see in what's happening in the past happening again. And you know, we say this over and over, there's nothing new under the sun. Everything we're seeing happening today has happened in the past. And we as a church need to always keep God focused as our top focus and keep, him, keep looking to him. And not just our church, but the entire church. Because the churches are falling apart. And there are many churches that do not believe in the Bible, do not believe in Jesus. And they're going to make life very difficult for those of us who are true followers. Because when they, when they say, well, all these other churches don't believe what you believe, are going to have to just say, well, they can believe what they want, but we have to believe the word of God. And this is why it becomes very important for us to know the word. Because if we don't know what the word says, then we can't live the way the word says. Um, Hezekiah went in, cleaned out the temple, and they read the word of God to him when they found the copy of the Bible in the temple. And he immediately tore his garments because of all the things they were doing wrong when he heard the word of God. And so this is something we have to be keeping in the forefront of our mind. If we want to live for God, we have to know what he says. And then the only way to know what he says is to by reading, reading and studying the word. And we want to be able to follow this process over and over again. In Ezra and Nehemiah's day on the building of the second temple, they, they found the word of God before them. And then they had a ceremony where the other people gathered around the, the high pulpit that they had made and they spent the entire morning from six to noon reading the Bible and being taught. You know, that's, a long, that's a long church service. I probably enjoy something like that, but not so many people would. <laughs> and then they kept going. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I, I look at that and go, man, I would just love. But they were hungry. They had found the word of God for the first time in a long time, and they were hungry to hear the word of God. Yeah. And my, my hope is that we get that hungry, that when we have the opportunity, we want to hear the word and be able to, to call it up. One of the things that's kind of interesting in America is how much there is not a desire for the word of God. We have the Bible in everybody's houses just about. And yet people do not know the word of God. I've got a friend who's teaching, teaching a uh, youth group. And he is shocked by the fact that the seven or eight people in their youth group, none of them can name even the first book of the Bible, much less the first five books of the Bible or the first five books of the New Testament. Yeah, and it doesn't shock me that much because I remember when I went to get my second degree, went to an English class and they read a, they read a passage out of an old book that had a Bible story reference into it and nobody in the class, including the instructor, knew what the reference was. And I don't remember what story it was. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like the most, you know, it wasn't the most famous of the stories, but it also wasn't one that was way you know, isolated. But, you know, they were trying to make the silliest comments about what that reference meant without knowing who it was. You know, it would be, some, be something like of us talking about Samson and Delilah and people going, well, we don't know who Samson and Delilah, Delilah are, making up all kinds of strange, strange, you know, interesting things about that, those two names without knowing that Delilah had tricked Samson into giving his the secret of his strength and cutting his hair. Uh, with, you know, in, but if you don't know the story, then that, that kind of a reference would mean nothing. In our day and age, people do not understand these references that are all through ancient, ancient writings. The Bible is referenced all the time. Uh, Delilah and, Delilah and Samson are in Judges. But we see here that they're not following after him. And then... After all these people have revolted and made the country smaller, it says, and the rest of the acts of Joram, so we're back to our king in, in Israel, and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Judah? And Joram slept with his father and was buried in the, with his fathers in the city of David, and Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his stead. Excuse me. I had this backwards this whole time. I've been confusing everybody. Joram is the king of Judah, and Jehoram is the king of Israel. Of Jude, of, uh, Israel, of Israel. Yourself. I'm confused myself. Yes, so I'm looking here. Jehor, Jor, Joram would 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 have, was buried in Jerusalem with with David, and Ahazi, uh, his son, reigned in his stead. So we have this battle in Judah. The king dies somewhere along the process as he's losing control of the nations around him that he's been in control of. Verse 25. In the 12th year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel. What have we done? Joram. I guess we're using Joram and Jehoram back and forth. <laughs> Sorry. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, did Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, begin to reign. 
22 years old was Ahaziah when he began his reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Athaliah, the daughter of Omri, king of Israel. And he walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did evil in the sight of the Lord, as did the house of Ahab, for he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. And he went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to the war against Haziel, king of Syria, in Ramoth-Gilead. And the Syrians wounded Joram, and the king Joram went back to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds which the Syrians had given him in Ramoth. And when he fought against Haziel, king of Syria, and Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab in Jezreel because he was sick. All right. <laughs> All kinds of fun names here. <laughs> All right. So Ahaziah began to reign at 22 years old. So he's even younger than his father was. Uh, his father reigned for only eight years, so it's not a surprise. And he reigns in Jerusalem for one year. And then they give his mother's name, and it's very rare, so you want to pay attention to this. Uh, Athaliah is his mother's name. She is the daughter of Omni, Omri, the king of Israel. And says he walked in the ways of the house of his Ahab. So he continues in what his father was doing, the same worship that his father was doing, not worshiping God, following after Baal, and possibly, possibly Astoroth. Uh, so he is going in and he is worshiping everything else. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He is not a good king. And we look in later on and find out that he was worse than his dad. So he's keeping, this is usually what ends up happening. Each generation it's worse. gets worse than the previous generation. Or in the case of the righteous, oftentimes they get better on this. And it's not necessarily just because of a curse or anything, but it's learned behavior. If all I see is bad, bad behavior, I start to think that bad behavior is normal. And that means if bad behavior is normal and I want to be bad, I have to be worse than the bad behavior that I think is normal. All right? And so it keeps going further and further and further. Now, the other side can be the same thing. If you're raising righteous family and you're talking about God and you're growing them, then they can start at a higher level themselves because what's normal to them is these good things and they reach out to do, do good and end up doing better. It is hard to break a cycle either direction. Now it's much easier to break the righteous cycle and come down because we have sin nature in our, in our, to help us out. But it is very hard without God to break the cycle of the downward trend. And we're seeing that in our world today. Each generation of our world is getting worse and worse and worse. And it's an amazing thing to watch, especially when you compare them to God's standards. Now, by the world standard, we're not getting that, that, that bad. But you, know, you think about this. If, you, if you're somebody who watches TV much... You watch some of today's TV shows and you watch the old shows from the, from the 60s even or the 70s. And it is shocking to see how different they, how much, how much degradation there is in the shows. Or you do like I did and you don't watch TV at, at all 
for a period of eight years and then you come and watch TV. <laughs> it is like an absolute culture shock to see the garbage that's on TV and realize that people were like the frog stuck into the pot of boiling water, you know, when put in and the water's turned up and it doesn't jump off out because it's, it, it'll cook itself because it doesn't jump out because of it. And that's how sin works. It just keeps turning up and turning up and turning up. And we get to the place where we don't even recognize it is getting worse and it's getting hotter and it's getting worse because it just happens so slowly over a period of time. And this is where God will open our eyes when we get in touch with him. And he says, look at the evil around you, the evil around you. And it is quite amazing to me. And it's, you know, and as I watch different things, see different things, hear different things, the thing that really shocks me the most is how vulgar our language is becoming. Things are said in front of people that would never have been said in front of people. You know, things are said in front of women and children that would never have been said in front of women and children in the past, or in good company for that matter. I go out of the prison and, you know, to be honest, most of the guards speak more vulgarly than most of the inmates. You know, most of the inmates at least have the respect for my class to watch their language. The guards, are, the guards don't. The guards have filthy mouths. And none of them, have, the, all of them only have, all the guards have one adjective in their vocabulary. And it's crazy. You know, but it also shows how uneducated people are. They've, we've lost in this world almost every, every adjective out there. And it's sad to see what's happening in our world. They hear it all the time. Why wouldn't they? They hear it, they hear it on TV. They hear it in front of, you know, of everybody else. And it, it is really crazy that that's what's happening. And the vulgarity in our language, the, the vulgarity on our TVs, the vulgarity in our newspapers and our reporting and everything else that's going on is so sad to see. And we're dropping deeper and deeper into sin with each passing generation. And it's a very scary thing to see, but also exactly what God said would happen. He said in the last days, it will become like the days of Noah where everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. And that's exactly what we're starting to see. People are doing what's right in their own eyes. We've disconnected from truth and everybody's deciding that their truth is all that's important. And this is why we as Christians are out of step with the world because we are following truth. And I would like to think that somehow we're going to be able to influence the world. The Christian church did influence Rome, but we are pulling away so fast, I'm not sure that it's gonna happen without a great revival. Is it possible to have a great revival? Yes, but I don't know if it's gonna happen. I don't know if we've fallen so far down Right now, we're very much like Rome was at, 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 its, at its worst. And the Christian, Christianity saved Rome. And then it polluted Christianity <laughs> in the process. But we'll see what happens as we go forward. We pray for a revival, expecting no revival. Because I'm looking forward to this. If, if it continues the way it's going, I, I, I just want to look up and see Jesus coming. I'm looking forward to his coming and saying, it's time for the church to leave. Now, the problem is, I think that we're going to have some problems before that. 
We need to prepare for the trials and tribulations that are going to come our way as the world puts pressure on us to quit Christ. And we need to prepare for this. And I keep bringing this up. You know, God is putting it on my heart so much that we need to be prepared. Because if we're not prepared, it's going to come as a surprise <laughs> that we're under attack. And it shouldn't come as a surprise. Jesus said, they, ha they hated me, they will hate you. But all through the Bible, we see the persecution of the righteous. We see over and over the righteous getting killed because of their beliefs. We need to be ready to take a stand for righteousness. And we need to educate our family, our children, our cousins, our nephews, our nieces, whoever comes in our way about Christ and help them get ready for what's coming. Because tribulation is coming for the church even before the great tribulation. There will be trials and tribulations. We may end up facing being able to be thrown into prison, being able to be thrown, being executed. Or worse yet, as I'm, I'm seeing more and more talk of, they want to re-educate anybody who doesn't agree with them. Over and over in our news cycles, there's right now saying, we have to retrain all those people that were just deluded by the conservative movement. Which means, instead of going to prison, we will go to mental hospitals <laughs> to be retrained. Or re-education camps, as Hitler called them. And as called as concentration camps. And that's the exact terms that are being used in today's world. That we are deluded, we need to be re-educated, retrained on how to think. Because we do not agree with them. And this is a very sad place to be, but we need to be prepared. We need to know the word of God because that, our memorized scripture may be all that can keep us during that period of time of re-education because I am almost sure they're not going to give us a Bible to be able to read because this book is full of all those lies that we believe that they don't want to believe. <laughs> and if we don't know it, we won't have anything to keep us. And this is one of the reasons I push for us to memorize verses, to be reading our Bibles so often that when we get to this point, we have something to pull on and remember. And God said he would not destroy his people. And we have Ahaziah ruling for one year, and it says he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab, so again, he is married also to somebody in Ahab's family. And it says, And he went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to war against Ahaziel, which we just saw last chapter, Ahaziel got, got killed. This is why I said we're going back in time here. All right. Uh, so he goes to battle with Ahaziel in Syria and Ramoth Gilead. And the Syrians wounded Joram. And King Joram went back to be healed in Jezreel, of his wounds, which the Syrians had given him at Ramoth, when he had fought against Ahaziel, king of Syria. And Ahaziel, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel, because he was sick. Now, in this last statement, because he was sick, I am, we're not sure whether it's Ahaziel who got sick, or if it's just he's going to see Ahab who was wounded. All right. This is one of the things about a pronoun it has to have a good antecedent. And we don't know exactly who the antecedent is here. I believe that it's Joram. Joram went back injured and, and he went back to say he is sick. 
Uh, but it's hard to tell. <laughs> Yeah, if it says he, there's really no way to know when, there, when you've got two people listed in the same sentence. Uh, just a badly worded, badly worded phrase. Uh, and it's not unusual. People do that all the time. We do it in English all the time, you know, uh, when we have multiple things and then we try to point back. And, and your English teacher, if you remember, what is the antecedent to this pronoun as they will point back to two different places or three places that it could, could go back to? And in this case, this is one of those things that there's two different people that it could go back to, and it's like, which of the two? I think with the context, it's talking about Joram, who had been injured. But an injury usually isn't called sickness. Uh, but it could very well be. Um, says wounded. wounded, yeah. So if it's wounded, then we're going to be talking about Joram. Uh, but for, as I recall in my study, I, it just said sick. <laughs> So we have that, pro, that all of that going on. All right, so now in verse uh, chapter t- 9. And Elisha the prophet called one of the children of the prophets and said to him, Gird up your loins and take this box of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth-Gilead. And when you have come there, look out for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and and make him rise up from among his brethren and carry him to an inner chamber. Then take the box of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and tarry not. So the young man, even the young man, the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he had come, behold, the captains of the host were sitting. And he said, I have come to, on an errand to you, O captain. And Jehu said, Unto which of us? Which of all of us? And he said, To you, O captain. And he arose and went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. And you shall smite the house of Ahab your master, and that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab him that pees against the wall, and him that shuts up and left in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jehor, uh, Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and like the house of Basha, the, the son of Ahazah. And the dog shall eat Jezebel in the portion of Jezebel, and there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and fled. <laughs> All right, so here again, we're going backwards. <laughs> We've we covered this story a little bit when the king was, was killed by this man. Now we're going the story behind that story. So Elisha goes and he says, he, the prophet, and he calls one of the children of the prophets. So remember, we've got this group of people that are in what we would kind of call a seminary. They're being trained by Elisha to be prophets. And when we say that, they're not being trained to be able to predict the future. They're being, able, they're being trained to understand the word of God and study and be able to teach and be prophets. And a prophet has, is one who speaks with authority from God. Now, part of being a prophet oftentimes included foretelling the future, but most of the time it was just speaking with authority from God's word. So by that definition, many pastors and teachers in churches are 
prophets. Uh, not foretelling the future, but speaking with authority from the word of God. So he takes one of these guys and he gives him an assignment. He says, gird up your loins and take this box of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. Oil was used to anoint. Now, in our day, we kind of anoint. We just take a little finger full of oil and rub it on somebody's forehead. In their day, they would take a quart to upwards of a gallon of oil and pour it over somebody's head to anoint them. A little bit messy. And he gives them a box. And we don't know exactly how big that box was, but it wasn't just a small amount. And he was to take and, and break it open. So it's probably upwards of a pint uh, of oil. And it says, when you come there, look for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat. And this is not King Jehoshaphat of, of Judah. This is another Jehoshaphat. Uh, all, this fun, all this fun of trying to remember who everybody is. You know, and we do the same thing. You know, we, we name our kids the same, the same as somebody else or there's famous you know, popular names. Uh, Jim, James, John. You know, we, we have all kinds of people uh, that we name things after. And in, in families, like I'm, I'm the third Ralph Wells in, my, in, my, in the family line because my grandfather and my dad have the same, exactly the same name. We, don't, we all share the same middle name even. Uh, and if my wife had allowed it, there would have been a fourth one, but she said I couldn't name my oldest one Ralph, so I didn't, I didn't go with the Ralph the fourth. <laughs> uh, so, but we see here that this name is popular. <laughs> but this is the son of Nimshi, and he says, go and rise from, rise, have him rise up from his brother and carry him to an inner chamber. So find Jehu and take him to a private place to give him this message. Uh, and it says, then take the box of oil and pour it on his head and say, I have anointed you king over Israel, and then open the door and flee. <laughs> now, obviously, when we re- what we read is he get- Elisha gave him more of a message to give him. You know, this, this is just telling us what's going to happen right off. He's going to go up, find Jehu, pour the oil on him, and send your king. God says, you're king, and he, and he used to run away. Uh, now, you got to think about this. Elisha's not very well liked in the kingdom of, of Omri and, and, and Ahab. Uh, he's hated. Uh, Ahab has been trying to kill him for, for, for all the time. And we see here that he's, he's sending a messenger up there saying, God has made another king. Another king instead of you. And then he was to get out of there quickly. Uh, I probably would get out of there real quick, too, after I said somebody else was going to be the king. So I didn't get accused of treason and executed on the spot. Uh, and then, so, verse 4 says, So the young man, even the young man, the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he came, behold, the captains of the host were sitting, and he said, I have an errand to you. So he has all the captains, all the generals. And he says, I have a, I have a message to you. Now, we just talked about previous chapter, you know, I have a message to you. Which of, the, which of these captains? And the very first question is, which one of us do you have a message for? All right. Uh, we got a whole group of us sitting here, and, you, and uh, who, who is your message for? They don't really probably know who he is even, you know, at, so far. And he says, oh, captain, you know, uh, and Jehu said, which, unto which of us? 
to you, O captain. Right? Jehu is talking to him and says, you, you're the one, you're the one that I have a message for. And it says he arose and they went into the house. And, it, and it's kind of interesting because he didn't give any perfunctory statement according to this. Goes in the house and he pours the oil over Jehu's head. <laughs> now, I'm sure he wore whatever clothing made him look like a prophet. I mean, it's, it's obvious that he's a prophet. Otherwise, this would not have happened. Jehu would not have let him pour oil over his head and probably wouldn't even have gone into the inner room without him doing it. So we don't know, you know, we think about this, you know, and, and when we look at them, they all wore these long clothes and everything. But each one of those clothings had significance in their day and age. It would be very much the thing of uh, seeing a Lutheran pastor. They wear, they wear the buttoned-up collars like the... Like the Jew, uh, like the uh, Roman Catholic priest, you know, you you know them by their clothes. You see a, a Catholic priest or a, or a Lutheran pastor, uh, they're buttoned up, and you know that they are a pastor. Much more than most Protestant denominations, where the pastor wears what everybody else wears, and you don't really recognize them as, as the as the leader of the church. Uh, so whatever it was, he saw somebody, and he knew that he was different. They went into the house. He poured oil on his head and he said, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. So he's bringing Jehu, who at this point is just a general in the army or a captain in the army. He keeps saying captain, but this word captain literally means top leader. All right. So he's, he's one of the heads. We, we would use the term general <laughs> in our day. Uh, so he pulls him aside and says, God has made you king. Now, this is kind of an interesting place. Jehu is from the northern kingdom. Probably not really worshiping God because what's being worshipped in, in the northern kingdom is Baal, Ashtoreth, uh, golden calf worship. All the, all the idols are being worshipped in there. And he says, the God of Israel anoints you king. Now, they still theoretically acknowledged God, the God of Israel. They just didn't worship him. And if you remember, why didn't they worship them? Because Jeroboam, when God gave him the kingdom, decided that he, they had to have their own gods so that they didn't go to Jerusalem and eventually become one nation again. If you remember, he's going, I can't have my people go to Jerusalem twice a year and worship there because they might eventually decide to become one nation and he introduced golden calf worship, and he put golden calves, uh, temples to the golden calves in Dan, which was the northernmost city, and in Bethel, which was the southernmost city, right on the road to Jerusalem. So that he was able to divert people trying to go to Jerusalem to say, worship here, here's, here's our God of the north. And they never, ever stopped worshiping golden calves in the, in the northern kingdom. And so we have here, we do not know what Jor, uh, Joram uh, is. Let me get the right king. Jehu. <laughs> we don't know who Jehu is worshiping, but the, God says you are made king. And then he goes even further in, in verse 7. And you shall smite the house of Ahab your master, 
that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. Now remember, Jezebel had been killing off all the prophets. All right? And we had individuals hiding. At one point, uh, Elijah had said, I'm the only one that hasn't bent my knee to, to the idols in, in Israel. And God says, no, I've got 5,000 who haven't bent the knee. Go do what I told you to do. And Jezebel and Ahab were killing off prophets all the time. And if they were able to get their hands on Elijah, they would have killed him as well. And God tells Jehu, you are going to be my avenger on all the bloodshed, innocent bloodshed. God always brings back the penalty for sin upon people. Nobody ever gets away with sin. We as his children definitely don't get away with sin. God, God gets us real quick because we're his children. But he always brings judgment on those who rebel against him. Even if they're not his, he still brings judgment. And this is why we have to be very careful when we look at somebody and say, God, why are they being blessed all the time? You know, and God says, well, number one, they're not. They're not happy. They're not, they're not at peace. But judgment will come. Always. Now, Ahab's judgment, we, we saw Ahab died a horrible death. Jezebel is going to die an awful death. Uh, and over and over again, God brings judgment on people that everybody looks at and says, God, they're getting away with it. They're, they've got everything and they're getting away with doing bad. And God says, nobody gets away with anything. We need to be able to realize God brings the punishment. He brings the vengeance. All we do is obey. And God will do what it takes to make sure that they get their punishment. And we need to be able to understand that and fully understand it. Ahab thought he was getting away with everything. Omri thinks he's getting away with everything. And God says, no, it's not. There's judgment to come. Now, Ahab, if you remember, he repented at the very end of his life. And God said, okay, because you have repented, the judgment and the loss of your kingdom will fall on your son. And this happened over, you know, and what gets me is these guys say, yeah, sure, that sounds good to me. <laughs> now, I don't understand that attitude. Yeah, go ahead and punish my son. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm going to be able to survive. You can, you, can, you can let the punishment fall on my son. I love my kids. I do not want to see them take punishment for something that I deserve. Yeah, and, but yet, over and over in the scriptures, you see these guys going, yep, yeah, it's fine by me. As long as it doesn't happen to me, you can do it, you can do it somewhere down the line. <laughs> yeah, and that's exactly what Ahab said. All right, fine. <laughs> yeah, my, kingdom, my kingdom's going to last. I'll give it to my son. And if he, he loses it, it's his problem. Maybe he's hoping that his son might repent. I don't know. But we see here that it was not going to be. And he says, you shall smite Ahab, your master, avenge the blood of the prophets and your servants. Verse 8, for the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off all of Ahab, all the males of Ahab that are shut up and left in Israel. So Ahab's line is going to be totally wiped out, completely. Uh, Jehu had an assignment, kill all of the male descendants of Ahab. That's going to be quite a, quite a task. And if you remember back when we read about it, Je 
Jehu does that. Jehu kills every one of Ahab's male descendants and uh, wipes out his house. Verse 9 says, And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and, of the, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. All right. So these were two dynasties before Ahab. So you have Jeroboam, the first king of Israel. He rebelled against God, and God said, okay, I'm going to kill all of his children, so his, his name will not be followed, no, no king. And Basha is the one that killed Jeroboam's family. Jeroboam was disobedient, and Ahab killed all of his family. <laughs> Ahab is disobedient, and Jehu is going to kill all of Ahab's family. The entire royal line is going to be wiped out. And this pretty much has to happen so that nobody else comes up and says, I should be king. Because if you remember in David's day, he did not kill all of Saul, King Saul's family. And on two occasions, Saul's family tried to come up and rebel against David and he had to defeat them. And this is why in most, in all of history, the kings usually would, you know, when there's a dynasty change, they will wipe out the entire line of the previous king just to make sure that nobody would come up and say, uh, my father was the king, was king before you, and I, and I claim their, their, their throne, or my cousin, or my uncle, or whoever it might be, was king, and I claim, I claim the right to the throne. So in this case, Jehu's also following and in each one of these cases, God told them, you will kill every one of the males of that line. Because of their disobedience, God said, I'm not going to have anybody come up here to wipe out. And this is the sad thing that happens. When judgment falls on the world and on the evil, it takes more than, than what we normally would happen. We talk about this a lot, the, the laws of sowing and reaping. We always get more than we sow in return. When we sow evil, more evil will come back on us than we sowed. And it's the same thing if you plant, if you ever plant seeds, you're not expecting, I plant one seed, I'm not expecting to get one piece of crop back. I plant one corn and I expect more than one ear of corn. I plant a jalapeno pepper, I don't want just one jalapeno to come out of the, out of the ground. I, I plant one, one uh, pea, I'm not expecting to get one pea pot out of, out of the bush. <laughs> You know, I'm expecting to get an entire <laughs> crop out of the bush. All right? This is exactly what happens with sin and for righteousness. Whatever seeds I sow, I get back in abundance. And this is what happens in these families. The seeds were sown. Their children were following the wrong direction. And God says, I'm going to destroy the entire family line so that nobody else is going to be able to come out of that line. And we need to be so sure of what's going to happen. When we sow evil, we'll watch it in our, in our lives, in our families, and, and be reproduced. When we sow good seed, it also works out the same way, and we get to take pleasure then in the way we watch our kids grow and how, they, how they're able to move forward with God and be able to follow in his, his line. And it says, and then in verse 10, after he says that uh, Ahab will, and Jehoram and Basha and Ahazah will be killed, 
goes, and the dog shall eat Jezebel in the portion of Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and he fled. So he gave a lot more than what we heard in the first part. But he says, Jezebel won't even be buried. And Jezebel was the main driving force behind Ahab's disobedience. She was the really evil, evil one. She is, she's the one that threatened uh, Elijah's life and, and everything. And because of her attacks, God says she gets special, special um, punishment. <laughs> and it says that the only thing they found of Jezebel after the end of her, when she was thrown off the second floor of the, of the room that she was in, the dogs ate her body and they found a small portion of the palm of her hand. The dogs completely consumed her. And that would be in the fulfillment of this prophecy. There won't be anything left of her. <laughs> and so all of these things happened as they went forward in, in all of this stuff going on. But we need to always remember there is punishment for evil and there is reward for righteousness. Always. Even if we don't see it, there's going to be punishment for evil and reward for righteousness. At the very least, it will be at the point of our death when we stand before God. If we are his children, we will be rewarded for the good that we have done. And if we have been disobedient, there will be judgment at the white throne judgment and, and they will receive hell. And usually there's punishment in this lifetime that we will see blessings for correct behavior and we will see punishment for incorrect behavior. And, you know, one of the saddest things that can happen is to do disobedient things and watch your children pick up on those disobedient things and follow into that same path that you started them down. And then it's even then you get saved and you're going, all right, God, I need them to change. And, and it's really tough sometimes for that to happen. And the good thing is when you start putting good seed in your, in your children to watch how God can use that and see that they can grow and be changed. I take great pleasure in watching my children as they're starting to reach out and start realizing that they know more than they ever knew and they're, and they're growing and, and challenging, uh, challenging me with questions and stuff because they're starting from a much higher place than I got to start from. I was the first one saved in my family. I didn't have anybody to be teaching me until my dad got saved, you know, two years after I got saved. And, but you know, we able to put things into our children. And the thing we want to always remember is, as we're teaching, we're discipling others, it may oftentimes look like we're not doing anything, that we're not getting anywhere, that God is not making, you know, nothing, nothing's getting through their head. <laughs> But the beautiful thing is, if you go walk with God long enough, you start seeing how people's lives are changed when you don't think you've done anything, and yet you get to watch how God moves in their life and how they are changed because God's word does not return void. Our job is real simple. And I've said this over and over. My job as a pastor is really simple. I just teach you the word of God. What you do with it is up to you. But the one thing I do know is I watch lives change. God's word eventually brings change. Eventually will bring that change to people's hearts. And they will grow. And they will be changed. And 
you know, which makes our job easy as a parent, you know, or somebody discipling. All I've got to do is keep teaching the Word of God, keep putting it into them, putting it into them, putting it into. Is that a guarantee that they're going to follow God? No, not necessarily. Of my four children, I've got one who's not following God. Now, he wasn't any less trained than any of the others. He made a couple of decisions that went the wrong direction. Now, can he come back? Of course he can come back. He can one day all of a sudden realize, you know, I was taught better than this. He can be the prodigal son and go, what am I doing feeding these pigs and wallowing around in this depravity? You know, my father's, my father's servants are, are better treated than this. Who knows what's going to happen? It's between him and God. My job was to just raise him up the way I, way I raised all my kids. Teaching the word of God, bringing, taking them to church, showing them the right way to live, and going forward. And that's our job with those that we are discipling. And we all should have somebody we're discipling and teaching. For many of us, it'll be our kids. For some, it'll be many others. I don't disciple my kids as much now that they're no longer at home. I'm now discipling more people in the church than I am anywhere else. But we still always have somebody to be able to disciple and say, teach, live, be an example to, and watch what happens because there are rewards. When people are disobedient, there is a reward that comes for that disobedience on them and on others, unfortunately. And for this is a great example of what it means to be responsible. Now, I have hurt my family many times in my stupidity as a father. You know, making dumb mistakes and then watching the kids and the family suffer because of things I was doing wrong. Not seriously, you know, not leading to death like these do, but, you know, making some bad financial decisions or bad, bad spiritual decisions and then watching the family as God's trying to get my attention suffer. And this is something that's very important for us as heads of, heads of families, heads of, heads of things. We impact others without even realizing it so often. And we have to be aware of our impact of our disobedience and obedience on those around us. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We ask you to help us to be good leaders in our families. Help us to find those that we're discipling and to develop that discipleship and see good things coming, coming through and helping them to grow. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona. 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.